Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, recording in my home office with my cat and potentially the wild parrots next door. Um, every week I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work in some small way. And today I'm very excited to have writer, director, Alice Winnicor here with me. Hi, Alice. Hi, how are you? Um, uh, you know, doing pretty okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> very calm. Very calm. <laughs> for uh, for those who of you who would like a little intro to Alice, please let me give you her bio. Uh, Alice is a writer and director who was born in Paris and works predominantly in France. She studied film at La Famille, uh, graduating to write and direct the short films Kitchen in 2005, Magic Paris in 2007, and Pina Colada in 2009. Her short-form work then led her to collaborate with directors on their screenplays. In 2008, she collaborated with Ursula Meyer and Antoine Jacoud on the film Home, then co-wrote Vladimir Perisic's uh, 2009 film Ordinary People. Finally, in 2012, she made her feature directorial debut with Augustine, an erotic period piece telling the story of an obsessive neurologist who becomes more and more enamored with a fascinating patient whose seizures and bouts of numbness lead her into a relationship she then longs to escape. The film was nominated for the Camera d'Or and the Caesar Award. And 2015, she followed that up with the action thriller Disorder, telling the story of a soldier with PTSD who takes a private security gig watching over the beautiful wife of a very wealthy man, which drags him back into a world of violence and fear, everything he was trying to escape. In the meantime, Alice collaborated with Denise Gamzi Ergevin on the screenplay for the film Mustang, which brought with it much critical praise and many award nominations. Now, Alice is releasing her third feature as writer and director, Proxima, starring Eva Green as a single mother given the opportunity of her life to be the first and only woman to travel to Mars and lose sight of the Earth, while trying to maintain an increasingly fraught relationship with her rebellious daughter. And people can see Proxima right now. Uh, on any VOD platform, pretty much all of them. And uh, so take a look. Um, so Alice, the movie that you chose to talk about today is A History of Violence. Uh, can you give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films? Yeah, I I think uh, it was difficult to make my choice. and uh, But I thought about that one because of the Cronenberg movie. And Cronenberg is a, like, a director really dear to my heart that was really important in the process of becoming myself a director. And I'm really, really... Uh, it has something really intimates the connection I have with those films and this mm -hmm. visceral and physical way of telling stories um also stories about bodies and uh and it's something that is really really that touches me in a place that is really intimate and um i remember really well the for the first time i saw this uh, film history of violence i was studying uh, in the cinema school, uh, La Femis in Paris, and uh, we had those holidays for Cannes Film Festivals, <laughs> which was a great thing. And uh, and I saw the film in the screening room of Cannes, and it was really a shock to discover that film. And um, it's really the kind of film to me that is exhilarating in the way that it seems really simple 
and uh, mm-hmm. and but it's it's an experience of complexity and i think it's the best i mean it's uh, the experience of cinema that i think is is really um something that i yeah that, that, that i really felt feel connected to like this idea that it's a real thriller a really genre movie but at the same time it's a really really deep and smart meditation on violence and the effect of violence and uh, and uh, and uh, and in a very humble way at the same time and also the relationship of the violence to the me- of uh, the media with the violence and uh, and yeah it shows so well uh, the 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 effect of violence and uh, and I really also like in many ways, and I think we'll have like an hour to talk about it. But uh, uh, how, yeah, in a Hollywood movie, you can also have a like, yeah, subvert that kind of movie, like to have like a very special approach with your own obsessions and uh, with the violence scenes, but also with the sex scenes that are really really. Uh, impressive and that I really think about very often on like the way it is staged that is so uh, special and so yeah and many things in those scene have been done for the first time and it's uh, more and more impressive that it is in a in a Hollywood movie so um, that's why I chose that movie and uh, of of course, also the performance, the what actors do in that movie, is also incredible. Yeah, you're, you're touching on pretty much all the things that we're going to get into okay. in, in the process and craft. Um, but for those of you who haven't seen History of Violence, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch a History of Violence first, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce A History of Violence with a short synopsis. Written by Josh Olson and directed by David Cronenberg for release in 2005, A History of Violence stars Viggo Mortensen as Tom Stahl, a diner owner slash husband slash dad in Millbrook, Indiana. When two robbers hold up his diner and threaten a waitress, we show this asshole we mean business. Tom suddenly kills both dudes surprisingly easily, prompting a Philadelphia gangster named Carl to visit Tom and accuse him of actually being Joey Cusack. We don't know each other. Come on, Joey, cut the crap. My name is Tom. Joey Cusack. Your name is Joey Cusack. You're from Philly. A professional hitman who disappeared years ago. Tom says, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't me, but Carl and his guys stalk Tom's family, putting his relationship under pressure. Tom's teenage son, Jack, gets in a fight at school and Tom hits him and prompting him to run away. But Carl gets Jack and tries to make a bargain with Tom. Admit you're Joey, come back to Philly with us, and we'll let Jack go. Don't make us hurt the kid, Joey. We just want you to come for a little trip with us down memory lane. Put the pop gun down. Come over and talk to us. Tom gets in the car, but then he kills the two goons in the car. Carl is able to free himself, and Tom finally admits, yeah, I am Joey. You got anything to say before I blow your brains out, you miserable prick? 
I should have killed you, Mac and Felly. Before Carl can kill him, though, Jack shoots Carl with a shotgun. Edie then tells Tom that she knows, and Tom comes out to her. He was a killer, and sometimes he even liked it. Did you do it for money, or did you do it because you enjoyed it? Joey did. Both. I didn't. Tom Stahl didn't. But he ran from Philly because he didn't want to be that person anymore. Later, the couple get a visit from the sheriff, who's getting mighty suspicious of Tom and his newfound killing skills. But Edie surprisingly covers for her husband and insists that he is not Joey Cusack. Tom is who he says he is. That's all that really matters. Sam has and his family suffered enough. And, uh, you know, making the sheriff leave, I guess, believing her. After, Edie and Tom get into a violent fight that turns to eroticism, and they have sex on the stairs of their home. A wild and confusing experience for both of them. At this point, Tom gets a call from his brother Richie, who demands Tom return to Philly. Hey, Brohim. You're still pretty good with the killing. That's exciting. Richie... Because ever since Tom left, it's been Richie who's been punished for his sins. Tom agrees and goes back, trying to make peace with his brother. But Richie orders his guys to kill Tom. I'm here to make peace. Tell me what I gotta do to make things right. You could do something, I guess. You could die, Joey. Then, Tom goes on to you know, kill both of those guys, or all of them, then makes the decision to kill Richie too. It's the only way to really leave his old life. When Tom returns home, his family is on edge, waiting for him. They resume what looks to be their old life, but tension abounds, and who knows how this experience has changed them for forever. Okay, so that's the movie in a nutshell, but so much about this film is all the nuances and performance, all like these really meaningful moments um, where you're just kind of feeling the tension between characters and the tension in the story. And something that um, Cronenberg was talking about before, you know, he took on this movie because he had been known for so many different types of films before this um, that that maybe weren't as Hollywood as this one is or kind of, uh, you know, straight in terms of uh, the classic elements. But he said that was actually what he was looking for. He needed to find classic elements of a story and then he would build out these original visuals and emotions around them. He said, quote, I don't normally undertake family dramas, but I felt for the characters and the Stahl family. It does have a powerful emotional resonance. A married couple with two kids are trying to live an open, straightforward, honest life and finding it difficult to do that. So I fell for that classical element, end quote. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about this kind of approach of, um, as a filmmaker, finding a story that is extremely simple taking a very simple story and then putting your mark on it. You know, is it easier to find that simple story or is it, um, you know, is that the kernel that you would begin with? Yeah, I think it's what every director should dream of. <laughs> and again, I really appreciate, I mean, as a director, but also uh, when I watch films, uh, films like whose complexity gradually emerges from simplicity. I think it's what cinema is about, that the more simple you are, the more deep uh, you, you can become. And, uh, and, and in that way, this film is a kind of masterpiece. And what strikes me also is how contemporary it remains, because it, I don't remember, it's like it has been made like 
10 years ago maybe or and still like yeah yeah it's it, it it's a kind of um also it's a kind of a relationship he makes with the also the audience saying okay you appreciate this kind of violence but if you like this violence you have to accept its consequences and to show what this kind of violence uh, do on bodies with like those distortion and special effects mm-hmm. um, that is also purely like in this uh, plastic approach like in a way a mix of beautiful and scary and so it's in many ways something you feel that is a, a reflection on your way of looking at those kind of films as well so yeah, it's a really disturbing film, and um, and yeah, in many ways, I was talking about also sex scenes. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. For example, uh, his like I don't know which ideas comes from the script or from Cronenberg's interpretation of the script itself, because uh, I know that for example the stairs scene, because there is a very violent sex scene between Maria Bello, uh, the woman of Viggo Mortensen, uh, so the, who is a lawyer, very normal in a way, uh, <laughs> if it means mm-hmm. something, but <laughs> like, no. Uh, t- um, yeah, small wife, town lawyer. Small town know. lawyer, exactly. And uh, suddenly she realizes that her husband is not the one she thought he was, and that's uh, because he has been so um, like uh, violent in a fight that suddenly she realizes that she, he shouldn't be the one she, he thought he was. And so um, she's making love with, uh, she's having sex with suddenly another, <laughs> another guy, um, which is this violent guy. And it's a very, very violent scene. Uh, it's almost like a fight and at the same time, yes. there, there is a pleasure because she is also uh, having a pleasure with that guy that she doesn't know. And it's almost like a rape scene at the same time. So it's a very, there's a, a lot of complexity and, um, and ambiguity in that scene. And I think Cronenberg is so good at uh, expressing those kind of uh, of mixed feelings uh, and uh, and this and I know I know I I heard that he has he has asked um, for the stance some uh, some uh, pads for the stance for the stairs because he was afraid that the yeah. actors would like hurt themselves and the guy for the, for this from the stance said that it was the first time. In in the in his whole career, that he was asked for stamps for a, a sex scene, but I yeah, <laughs> protective pads for a yeah. sex scene. He's just like, this is a sex scene. Okay, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk more a history of violence and Proxima and disorder and Augustine, all these things that uh, that Alice Winokur has done. We'll be right back. I started listening to Ono, Ross, and Carrie shortly after I broke my arm. I couldn't get my book started. I was lost, honestly. I knew it was time to make a change. 
There's something about Oh No, Ross and Carrie that you just can't get anywhere else. They're thought leaders, discoverers, founders. I'd call them heroes. Ross and Carrie don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. They take part themselves. They show up so you don't have to. But you might find that you want to. My arm is better. I wrote an entire book this weekend. It, it's terrible, but I did it. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Thank, Thank you, Ross, Ross and Carrie. Oh, no, Ross and Carrie is just a podcast. It doesn't do anything. It's just sounds you listen to in your ears. All these people are made up. Goodbye. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Alice Winokur, and we're talking the history of violence. Um, you were talking about um, the, the the kind of special uh, combination that David Cronenberg has to to get these actors to kind of lose themselves, and I wanted to talk about his process and see if that relates anything to to how you try to be on set, um, because he believes that if he is vulnerable as a director behind the screen, um, behind the, the camera, then the actors will also feel um, much more comfortable being vulnerable on the screen. So he said, quote, I feel that to me, one of the ultimate challenges is to not adorn, not to hide behind stuff, because there are very easy things you can do in films, especially now, to disguise yourself and make things easy to protect yourself. I'm as vulnerable as my actors, maybe more so when I direct a movie, maybe not in the same physical way, but very vulnerable. And it's very tempting to do stuff to hide behind it. I try not to do it or get overly techniquey. If you can do it right, it's, there's a raw simplicity that's incredibly powerful because there's a certain truth right there. If you blow it, there's nothing to hide behind. It's obvious when you've blown it. So that's why you get guys that do jittery camera stuff when it's just a guy sitting in a room talking. They do stuff up here and they've got cranes and whatever. I just sit there and say, okay, I've cast this guy for his face, for his voice, for his acting. I just want you to see that. Let's just trust all that you've done and look at this guy talking. I don't need to do fancy, silly stuff that has no meaning or artistic purpose, end quote. Um, and so, you know, you can kind of see that in terms of he's not doing fancy shots. There is no like crane dipping down, you know, trying to create drama. He's just looking at his actors and he's relying on hopefully that he made the right choices. Yeah, of course. It's about making to build like a, a relation of trust with, with your actors and of course your vulnerability or your also, intimate approach of your of your story is something uh, that everyone on the sets uh, can feel. Uh, to me, I mean, it's something. I mean, I I think I couldn't make uh, I couldn't write a story or I couldn't direct a film if I don't have this intimate connection with the film, with the story I'm telling. And uh, mm -hmm. on, Pro on Proxima, uh, the story about this uh, astronaut and, uh, and uh, her daughter, it, of course, it takes place in a special world, this world of astronauts, which I knew nothing about. If, uh, of course, I, I, had, I was fascinated by space since my childhood, but I knew nothing about that world. But uh, to me, I think uh, I like to investigate the world uh, to investigate a world and then I discover that what what, what drives me to it uh, are very intimate things and uh, the, uh, I, I can only speak about my intimacy by projecting myself in a very distant and unknown world I like um, the more it is intimate the more it has to be 
far. And uh, my first film, Augustine, was taking place in the 19th century, uh, <laughs> like uh-huh. in another world with uh, hysterics. But um, uh, each and the second one was those soldiers coming back from Afghanistan. Of course, I've never been uh, there as well. But uh, I, it was about the PTSD and this uh, post-traumatic experience that I had experienced myself uh, and in that film, Proxima, I have a daughter myself. I'm not an astronaut, but I know what it is like to have this feeling of not being the right mother and uh, mm-hmm. not to fit to this uh, representation or to this idea of the perfect mother you have been told you should be. And uh, so I really built the film on this um, on, on those intimate feelings uh, and the film was the mix of those intimate things with uh, the reality I was discovering of those astronauts I was meeting while I was writing, but also mm-hmm. also with the actors, of course, with Eva Green, who was playing the astronauts. Um, uh, we had also those conversations about my own daughter. And also it was something really weird about the movie that we were in Russia in those military bases, or I felt that I had put myself in the same situation as the astronaut in the movie that I was mm-hmm. missing my own daughter. So I think uh, it made also a connection um, with her and uh she was not. Yeah. Uh, she was not a mother herself, but she, I, I, I really liked that she was not a mother. That she could uh, also felt really clumsy with the daughter, and I could re- realize my own uh, feeling of not being the proper, the right mother. Yeah, it's therapy. You get therapy for. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, that is what is. I mean, of course, it, it's the hard part that you have still to be not to be so vulnerable <laughs> that you have to be concentrated on the story. And so that's really, it's this mix. The, you know, you brought up something earlier that, that I'm uh, curious about. And that is like, um, you're working with, with actors who have to have kind of brave performances and who have to melt into the roles. Um, and something that Cronenberg was talking about with a history of violence was that he needed an actor who didn't want to protect their image. Um, it couldn't be a star star who was, who was in the movie. He said, quote, Vigo is my kind of actor. I like to work with actors who are not just leading men, but also character actors. They tend not to be afraid because they're not trying to protect some image they see of themselves as traditional leading men. And this gives them a much bigger palette to paint from because they have all kinds of edges. I like a kind of eccentricity that is more typical of a character actor than a leading man, and yet still has a leading man presence and charisma, end quote. And I think it would, I think it's frustrating for him when he was doing this movie because there was a $32 million budget. And, you know, I have a longer quote about how he was selecting actors for this movie, but, you know, he had to have a star, otherwise they weren't going to give him the money, but it couldn't be someone who wouldn't, um, you know, kind of deface themselves, like bringing themselves, you know, into a, a kind of um, strange space. And so it was a really difficult process of finding Viggo Mortensen and, 
you know, I'm not sure how the, like the French film industry is, you know, how you guys, uh, how much you're attached to having a star to kind of sell the film or if there's a little bit more leeway, um, you know, how, how, how do you go about finding these actors who will be vulnerable on camera? Yeah. Uh, it's pretty much the same in, in France that, uh, of course, uh, for fundings, our producers, uh, of course, prefer stars, and uh, and uh, but uh, I I think for this film, choosing Eva was a kind of a that I ha- I have always been fascinated by her as an actress that I saw her in so many Burton movie and that I was really uh, I-, I loved her strangeness. I think I really. Uh, thought it was great to have she she says from herself that she comes from another planet and uh, I think it was great for she does yeah that (laughs) she doesn't know which planet but not planet earth and um, uh, it's something that I I could feel as well so I think we we could have met on this planet but uh, I mean no it's that I really uh, I thought it was great for the astronaut to have someone that is not really grounded, that is not really on Earth, that is already a space person in a way. Um, mm-hmm. Even if we follow her like a mutation, because the more and more she prepares to leave the Earth, the more she becomes this space person. That's uh, and this uh, and that was really the accelerating part of the. Of the, of the movie also because uh, what I was filming was also uh, close to my obsession as a filmmaker to uh, to because in real life astronauts they do a lot of um, you know experiences uh, they are really concentrated on their bodies because they have to become they have to mute to be to leave the planet because our body have been designed to be on planet earth and it's very very hard it's very hard to be to yeah to transform themselves but to go back on the actors uh eva i was really in in love with her and uh so it was uh an evidence to me to to have her in the movie you know that's uh, i'm I was going to ask you that actually. Um, when Cronenberg was talking about having cast these actors in a History of Violence, he said that you know his process is essentially kind of rewriting a script with them. He said, "Quote: Vigo does his homework and thinks about things a lot. He helped to create his character, but I always go through a script after I brought in the cast to make it more natural for them. It's a very po- collaborative process." End quote. Um, and you know, even though Josh Olson actually wrote this uh, screenplay, David Cronenberg, of course, did his own pass on it before he um, directed. And that pass was very involved with both Maria Bello and um, Viggo Mortensen, who who shaped these people um, really, really completely, um, which goes back to what he was talking about before, where he was just like, he's looking for a script where there are, are like classic elements that he knows he can play with and that he can kind of... Um, uh, make his own um but having those actors there to create their characters i think seems invaluable yeah yeah it's true and i'm thinking about another sex scene that is uh, really really that i think is incredible so i think very much of that scene um uh, now because i had to 
uh, direct for my next movie uh, because I, I have a kind of obsessional re uh, relationship to films from my childhood. Uh, we were watching like two or three times a day the same film with my little brother and I have still the same kind of um, a compulsive or obsessional relation to some kind of films that I, uh, when I start to direct a movie, then I think again about this uh, the, those films. I mean, definitely History of Violence is one of them. Uh, I had, uh, for example, for Disorder, um, I, I was inspired by the violence scene and like for my next... Yes, I can see that. Yes, yeah, I can absolutely see that. This very raw violence uh, that is inspired from street fight and those kind of type of violence is something that was really clearly a reference uh, and the fight in the cafe and, and the way it's mm -hmm. staged. But um, for the sex scene, I mean, was this sex scene uh, was inspiring to me for my next movie that I'm about to shoot. And uh, it's uh, this scene between Maria Bello and uh, Viggo Mortensen in the bed uh, while they are, I mean, the, it's amazing to have this, uh, uh, it shows them having like a kind of a, uh, she's uh, dressed as a cheerleader, uh, Maria Bello, uh, as she was when she was a teenage, and uh, they are making fun of it. And and then they do. Uh, I don't know if you say that it's the same in in English. I mean, in French we say 69, which would be like in English 69. I don't know if you say that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it's really what is on screen. And uh, we really see, uh, I, and um, I don't have uh, uh, the memory of that kind of sex, especially in a studio <laughs> movie, which is amazing. No. That's what is amazing, that it's how it's, 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 I think it's the first time in history that in a studio movie you have a 69 <laughs> scene with, with actors it's like this. Wild. And that... And it's really wild and, and also of actors of that age. I mean, it's not that they are so old. That's, uh, but they're not they're course, in their 20s. Like, they're not in their 20s. And I think uh, if we see those kind of sex, it's always with like uh, younger actors. So I think, again, it tells something also about bodies, desire and, uh, and sexuality yes. uh, that is really unusual. And I think it's... Uh, I mean, it's what I'm looking for as a director and as a scriptwriter is to tell stories that haven't been told. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, Proxima, um, we there is a moment when you where you see Eva Green, uh, who is told about uh, her period, uh, because uh, uh, you know um, astronauts, women astronauts, when they go to space, they have to choose if they want to keep their period or not, or stop it with like very strong yeah. pills. And it's of course something a choice that men don't have to do. And uh, and I, I I thought it was a, a great detail to tell about that. I think period is something that is not um, much told about in films, but it's really yeah. part of our life as women that it comes every month and uh, 
you say in English uh, the curse, but I think it's really also <laughs> something that we we have been told also not to tell about. We don't even tell to our our friends, or we have to remain silent about this. And I think it's time that cinema uh, like <laughs> talk about those kind of intimate aspects of life, also of uh, of women. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I think it's, um, it was, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I like to tell stories that are find those kind of details, uh, mm -hmm. that haven't been told already and that are part of life. Uh, we're going to take a quick break again. And when we come back, we'll talk a lot more history of violence and also proximal. We'll be right back. Hey friends, Jesse here, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have some really great news to share with you. This year has brought a lot of changes for all of us. And one tradition that we were grateful to be able to hold on to is our annual pin sale to benefit charity. This year, through your generosity and love of pins, you helped raise $95,400 for Give Directly. If you're a member and you bought pins, they'll ship in January. In the meantime, your support will provide direct cash relief to families impacted by COVID-19 across the United States. Even in this incredibly tough year, the Max Fund community remains extraordinarily kind. And whether or not you bought pins, you can continue to help by heading to givedirectly.org. As always, thank you. Back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Alice Winnicor from Paris. And we're talking about a history of violence. Um, something that we talked about before that I want to get back to has to do with um, the kind of allowing your actors to create their characters. Um, and so I wanted to go just a little bit deeper into that um, because in this case, you know, um, Viggo Mortensen did quite a bit uh, to outside of his comfort zone to create this guy, Tom. Cronenberg um, said, quote, I don't do anything special with my actors. I am a very lazy person, and I really like my actors to do the work. Vigo is a collaborator. He went down to Midwestern towns and hung out with people, and we had a dialect coach to help with accents. But he actually bought things for set, the first time in my experience of an actor doing set decorating. He brought things that his character would have around him in his diner, like the little fish bank that said fishing money in the shape of a fish. And those were touchstones for him. I'm the outsider and I'm just feeling for the moment when the performance feels false, end quote. So he gives a lot of free reign and, you know, Viggo Mortensen commented on that uh, as well. The fact that like you can see that so many actors who work with David Cronenberg are doing some of their best work. Um, and, you know, why is that? He said, quote, again and again, you see actors like Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, William Hurt, Jeremy Irons, any number of people. They tend to give some of their best performances because he knows how to work with actors. He's a great storyteller, but above all, he's a great communicator. On one hand, he's very scientific in his approach, very organized and analytical about it. By the time he starts shooting, everyone is on the same page. Everyone is very clear on what the blueprint is. It's very lean and refined, end quote. So if you hear Viggo Mortensen talk about it and, and saying like, oh, Cronenberg is just like, everything's planned. Everyone knows what they're doing. And then Cronenberg talks about it and he's just like, I'm not doing anything. You're doing everything. <laughs> um, I find that 
a fascinating dynamic that like, it does seem like true collaboration, even if, you know, he, he's just the guy who has confidence to say it's, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what I could add to this. I mean, uh, for sure. I'm the, the, it's something you can feel in the movie that's also some like physical uh, body language, the, what they have probably worked on, how he changes from Tom's tour to Joey. Have you ever had an actor in the same way that Cronenberg said um, Viggo Mortensen needed essentially kind of physical objects around him to kind of um, to cue him into what kind of character he was going to be in, in each scene or a moment. Um, yeah. Just like some. An- yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that's pretty, I mean, that many actors do for Eva. <laughs> we had like uh, really funny moments on those military bases also because she was, I had asked her to train with real Russian trainers, the one who trained uh, astronauts. So they were really yeah. tough on her, and they didn't give a sh- they didn't give a shit that she was evergreen. They were like yelling at her, and they were very very <laughs> hard on her. And so, of course, uh, all of those uh, because this the thing about Proxima is that we we were there is no recreated sets. We are in real places. It was the first time. Those places were shots uh, uh, because they are really secret, uh, like uh, secret uh, places, and we had to mm-hmm. have like uh, many authorizations. And uh, so, in a way, it was like kind of act of studio, even for uh, Matt Dillon to arrive there and to be in the real places. Also, we had like astronauts that were living, uh, that were in the bedroom close to. Uh, the bedroom where we were shooting, that the bedroom you see in the film where, she, where Eva is, yeah. are the real bedrooms of real astronauts. So um, it was like uh, hard conditions of, of uh, shooting, but at the same time, it was really inspiring for actors. So it was a kind of plus. But um, I think it's... Uh, what is great about working with actors is that you discover for everyone, I mean, each of them, what is important to them. Uh, one actor I've worked with is obsessed with shoes, that he really has to find the proper shoes for the character and that he mm-hmm. he, 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 he doesn't need like psycho like uh, analysis about the <laughs> Uh, the, the 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 character and whatever that it's a lot of talking and that he just needs the proper shoes and I think also the, <laughs> I think uh, also to find like the right costume is a really important pro- uh, in the process um, if you do a period time uh, drama then you feel for example that uh, the clothes are much more heavy than our closes. So you move differently. And I want to, as we kind of wrap up on this, I wanted to bring up the the last scenes of <clears throat> a history of violence and this kind of ultimate culmination of uh, letting uh, characters kind of run or actors run with their characters. Because that last scene where the family is sitting in the house waiting for him to return, and he may or may not, um, all of that was improv. None of it was really in the script. 
And um, what Maria Bello said was, quote, we had filmed for three months. We shot that scene in the last week. And when we talked about what we were going to do, David said, you guys haven't inhabited, you guys have had inhabited these characters for three months. You'll figure it out when Vigo's character walks in the door, see how you feel. And we did. And I remember we were really concentrated, Heidi and Ashton and I sitting there and we were, we heard the door slam and I was looking down. I saw Vigo's boot and looked at Ashton and we were just bowling, welling up immediately. It was so emotional because we had built this very familial thing, the four of us. And just to see that sort of coming apart in real life as well as in our pretend life was really emotional. And we didn't know what I was going to do. And we just sort of figured it out in the moments of that day. And I think what you're left with is kind of obscure, but hopeful, end quote. And so there wasn't really even a guiding emotion that he had for for that day. It was just like, well, what feels honest? What feels real if this character comes back? Because there is, you know, this open-endedness to it. Um, and, you know, that feels like the ultimate trust in your actors, that you can trust them to tell the the end of their own story. Yeah, that's definitely a beautiful end. And uh, I feel it was also really inspiring for a lot of directors, because I can recognize in some other films like the same detail and the same things. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty moving end. And just before that one, there is also this uh, scenes near the lake when he's like uh, like taking off all the all the blood and and uh, swimming in the water and and there's almost something re religious about this scene of a uh, purification mm -hmm. after the violence trying to become uh, to go back to uh, norm something more normal and uh, and uh, as I say I mean to make it simple is so <laughs> like to to yeah I think it's uh, I think it's it takes a lot of work also in preparation to like to also to build that trust and also to have mm -hmm. it's not something that you you get on the set like this. I think it's much more work to uh, at first to have this uh, to have this confidence to do this uh, and to let go like this. Do you, I mean, would you ever shoot the last scene of your movie last just so the actors can feel the kind of weight of everything that's happened that they've already performed? I, actually, I did uh, in Disorder. Uh, I did it with uh, Matthias and Diane Kruger, who was playing the, the part of uh, J Jessica, uh, mm -hmm. the, the woman of... Uh, uh, and... Uh, she's coming back to hold him and uh, we don't really know if she's a ghost or if she is really coming back to hold him and uh, and we didn't have any like um yeah rehearsals on that moment and uh, and uh, it's really uh, Diane who came up with this thing of uh, uh, the, the the way she's hugging him is something she really found found on the set, and she's holding, she's going from the back, she's coming from the back and holding him like this, like a, um, mm -hmm. 
almost like across like the chest across the chest yeah and and also holding her hands and it's also something we really see in the film that he has so many scarf on on his hands so she's holding her hand and um, yeah to me it was uh, something I, I couldn't have think of as well this very tender and at the same time yeah this gesture yeah. Which I think, you know, as a person who, you know, as a, a screenwriter who writes outside of your own directing, that kind of thing, I think it's it's nice to see someone who, even if they are a screenwriter and wants to be precise maybe on the page, that they can let go when they're in the director's chair. Yeah. Um, I would like to uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, yeah, for choosing a history of violence to talk thank about. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was great talking to you. And also remind people that they can see Proxima as well. And Proxima is available on VOD pretty much on every platform. So check it out. And you can also look at uh, um, Alice's past work, um, Augustine and Disorder, which when I was a critic, I gave great reviews because okay. they're lovely films. Thanks. Um, so thank you again so much much uh for zooming in from paris yeah thank you and thank you for listening to switchblade sisters if you would like to tell us what you think of the show you can tweet at us at switchblade pod or email us at switchblade sisters at maximumfun.org and please check out our facebook group too that's facebook.com slash groups slash switchblade sisters our producer is casey o'brien our senior producer is laura swisher and this is a production of maximumfun.org I should have killed you, Megan Felly. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.